Welcome to the May edition of the Chauffeur Podcast. Each month, the Chauffeur Podcast looks at different topics that impact the transportation and technology industries, as well as current trends in business. This month, we're focusing on venture funding, when it makes sense for a tech company to take investment from an outside partner, or when it makes sense not to take any funding at all. We're joined by two early stage investors from O'Reilly AlphaTech Ventures, Bryce Roberts and Nima Eliassi-Rod out of San Francisco. AlphaTech focuses on investment levels that are more than a typical angel investment, but less than a traditional Series A capital investment. And we'll talk more about what that means. Uh, Nima and Bryce, welcome. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Pleasure. And we're also joined by Chauffeur CEO Armir Harris. Welcome back, Armir. Thank you. Uh, Armir, I'd love to start with you. How, how did you guys meet? Yeah, of course. Um, so I was actually looking to raise capital, and I reached out to several um, Silicon Valley VCs. And uh, I think Nima and I connected. Uh, we shared uh, the same business philosophies, although uh, the deal, unfortunately, didn't end up going through. Um, I've stayed in touch with Nima and Bryce, and uh, we share strategies. And I think um, I think we share a lot of philosophies, not just in business, but uh, but in life also. Great, Nima, and and so and Bryce, how uh, did you and Nima meet? Nima, you can take that one. <laughs> uh, let, let, let's say, as, as the kids say, I creeped on Bryce. So I socially creeped on him for maybe nine years. Um, he was one of the people that, uh, from a distance, I learned the venture business from. And as a young immigrant kid in the Midwest, I aspired to be a VC uh, for some nine years. And then I had the fortune of working at one of the oldest venture firms in the country. Um, but I was, just didn't really see myself as quite a fit for the traditional venture model or venture as it's known. Um, so normally I write short emails, but I ended up writing a, a love letter to Bryce saying, hey, um, you know, he was... I, you know, I knew he was doing um, an experiment at the time, what he called the DVC, where, you know, he wrote eight entrepreneurs, 800K checks, and essentially said, God bless, go be profitable. I hope you never raise again. And meanwhile, we're sitting at a more traditional firm saying, are you the second coming of Google? So I was just trying to better understand where's the gap between, you know, 100K and 600 billion in market cap. That felt like a giant gap. So... That started a conversation, and um, now fortunate to to be working with Bryce on building out NDVC. But I think it might actually help for Bryce maybe to even talk about the history of OATV and how it's evolved to NDVC, because that story itself, I think, is is very important. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, I've been in venture in different capacities for the last fifteen years. Um, both as a you know kind of junior guy on a team at a more traditional fund, and then starting uh, OATV as my own fund back in uh, 2005. And the original idea or insight with OATV was that um, you know there were a class of companies that were enabled by new technologies that were coming to the market back in early 2000, which were um, you know, hosted infrastructure, 
open source software, so many of the most impactful innovations that were coming and that entrepreneurs were taking advantage of um, were all taking cost and risk out of getting a business started. Um, and as a result, we saw an opportunity to create a not, not only a new asset class, but really a different business model for getting early stage companies funded and potentially scaling. Um, and so, you know, that that evolved into what's now pretty well understood as seed investing. But at the time, it was it was definitely a, a small niche of the of the early stage investment market where we were writing, you know, five hundred thousand dollar checks and entrepreneurs were able to kind of create as much value or um, find as much product market fit as it would have cost, you know, they would have had to raise $5 million to be able to cover as much ground only, you know, a few years prior. Um, and so and so that was, that, that's what we created OATV to do. And, you know, as you know, um, you know, the market for seed investing over the last, oh, you know, 10 plus years since founding OATV has really, has really boomed into its own market. And, um, you know, what started off as, you know, a handful of funds is now, you know, hundreds of funds, um, you know, kind of creating a model um, of investing that uh, kind of looks like what we started out to accomplish with seed investing early on, but also has really morphed into a very different um, beast than we kind of set out to build. Um, and so with NEVC, we're, you know, we're, we're kind of going back to first principles on um, that kind of investing with the idea that um, so many of those things that made entrepreneurship more accessible and more scalable 10 years ago have only compounded and been, become more so. Um, and yet the funding model that, that's evolved to support those companies really hasn't changed a whole lot uh, in, the, you know, in the ensuing years. Right. And the model that you were among the first to do, I, I, I guess imitation is the best form of flattery, right? Um, where <laughs> For sure. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, it was it was definitely a signal that we were on to something. That maybe in the early days, when everybody was saying no to us and they didn't really understand what we were doing, and why would we want to write smaller checks and take earlier risk? Um, you know, it, it, it is it's certainly exciting to see that those all of those no's and all those funny looks we got, you know, ten years ago uh, have, have have been proven worth taking. Right, you've found that sweet spot where that where the investment amount, and I'm sure your investment is your time as well and other resources that you guys bring to the table. It's greater than that of an angel, but less than you know some big Series A investment. That at least that's what I sure. Yeah, that is uh, well. It certainly recalibrates the expectation of what a successful outcome looks like. Right, if you're taking money from a fund that is you know multiple hundreds of millions of dollars, there's one kind of exit that you're investor is interested in and willing to kind of work with you towards versus a seed fund you know if you're writing half a million dollar checks and you're returning a 50 million dollar fund the distribution of outcomes that still can drive a meaningful multiple on that fund are just so much broader than than what a what a traditional vc has to invest in i keep coming back to moneyball you know, where right. it's not looking for yeah, Babe Ruth. Some people have certainly applied a lot of those principles, for sure. Yeah, you're not looking for Babe Ruth or, or Nima, as I heard you do on the Vinny Vidivici podcast, talking about Facebook 
you know, being like Babe Ruth and you have to produce, what, what did you say, two Facebooks a day or something? And it's just not really. Oh, no. Uh, it's, it's a, per, per, if, if all venture funds raised now are to return to 3x gross and, and funds are managed over 10 years, I mean, each year at time of liquidity, 10 years from now, we'll need three to four Facebooks at their market valuation today at time of liquidity. Again, not what, not what TechCrunch writes about, not the fake valuation of you, me, and a bottle of whiskey and maybe some Coke Zero for Bryce, but <laughs> like actually liquidity, like real cash that you can take to a grocery store and buy bread with, that would need to be for Facebooks. And that's just for the vintage funds from 2016 when they come due in 2026. I mean, that's a tall ask of everyone in the ecosystem, not just the VCs, but also entrepreneurs. Right. Um, right. And, you know... That's, that's not necessarily success, right? We recently interviewed an entrepreneur uh, who runs a company called um, Balsamic. And, you know, last year he did, you know, close to double-digit millions in revenue and put a million in his bank account. Um, if, if that's the worst outcome uh, in your life and that's what you do for seven, eight years, that's hardly the worst thing that could happen to, to you as an entrepreneur, right? So now as investors, we can find a way to a return from that then there's real true alignment right you have you've effectively redefined what success looks like probably brought it down to earth a little bit more and and what that picture of success looks like is successful to i'm sure it's successful to everybody sitting here at this table here in atlanta i can tell you that um well look i think the reality is we've been we've been sold this model for ambition or this model for success as an entrepreneur that just isn't true that most people actually wouldn't subscribe to i don't know that most founders really want to be running a business that includes thousands of employees i just don't know that most people would be happy doing that nor in an age of of scalable technologies why they would need to be running an organization that big and still be able to generate meaningful returns for themselves and their investors right right and the i, I presume the numbers can still work uh, for OATV just because of the, the number of investments that can be made? I think the number of investments that can be made, I think the size of a fund that those are coming out of, and then in your Moneyball analogy, right, like there's bound to be a few outliers. Um, and, you know, given the structure of the fund and the way we invest, those outliers can drive a, a meaningful return to our fund just like they could anybody else's. Yeah. If not more so because we aren't, getting diluted over ideally we're not getting diluted over successive rounds of funding these companies are creating a lot more value uh without taking the dilution themselves or without giving the, their investors that similar amount of dilution by the way this is nothing like the ndvc model has absolutely nothing to do with somebody's ambition if you plan on in your heart you want to build a massive business ndvc does not prohibit you or dampen your ambitions all it says is, let your ambitions grow with your results. How would you know, day one, whether you're Google or not, right? Qualtrics, Armir and I often talk about this, Qualtrics didn't look like Qualtrics today. They were bootstrapped for nine years. The year they raised venture, and Bryce, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that year they did $50 million in top line and double-digit millions in profits. I mean, if that's when you want to go... 
pursue it, maybe that's the right time. And venture fundamentally, traditional venture isn't inherently bad. You know, it's just maybe out of the gate, it's not the best option to sell ownership and uh, subscribe to a certain path. Well, Nima, I'm glad you brought up Qualtrics because I, I, why did it make sense for them to take money in their ninth year? I mean, Brian's talked about this publicly. Um, you know, for them, they had gotten to a scale that they felt they had proven to themselves that now they can go blow it out of the water. I think that was one aspect that he shared. Um, and the other one was truly they thought they had the right partners in the VCs they raised. I mean, part of what, um, what we think, especially as the experiment has grown, what we think is our secret sauce is actually partly our community of bootstrap founders. So if everyone you hang around the room shares the same worldview and ambitions as you, those are the right people to work with. Another word for right people to work with would be partners, right? Um, the folks at NDVC are the partners who will constantly remind you that you shouldn't forego profitability and optionality for the sake of uh, what folks in Silicon Valley call growth, right? How did, how did old businesses like GE build their businesses? They didn't just forego growth at the sake of profitability, right? Um, our, our core belief is right. you can still grow meaningfully fast um, and large while remaining profitable if, if you have a software business with software margins, right? I mean, that, that's, I don't think that's that wild of a concept, uh, although it seems like it is. Well, you talk about this this network of entrepreneurs or bootstrappers, and it makes me, Bryce, it makes me think of what I what I an impression I got when I was reading your blog. I the first thing that struck me when I read your blog was, man, this guy travels a lot. This guy, and Bryce, I just presume that that is you're contributing to some of that synergy, right? I hate, I'm sorry to use the word synergy. I feel I feel so old school, but the but it, but is that is that you seem very deeply involved in your investments, Bryce? Is that is that are you I mean, on the that, road that, a lot for that's that reason? Partly it. Um, you know, I live in Salt Lake City, so for me to hit uh, any of these given hubs, it requires me getting on a plane. So that's one of the trade-offs we make. You know, in choosing to build our life here, is that you know we just know we're going to be on the road a little bit more. But I also, you know, I also recognize that we are deep in the in the missionary phase of this this new investment model and then it's going to take time to get out there and to you know create value for not only get the message out on what it is we're trying to do but also you know a big chunk of of where we spend our time and where we feel like we can be most helpful to the founders we work with is you know bringing those relationships those experiences um and those networks to every investment that we make um and sometimes we're out hustling on behalf of our of our companies and sometimes we're out hustling on behalf of our mission as a fund but fortunately those two uh, overlap pretty consistently which is which is a nice place to find yourself in business yeah that makes sense armir I'd, I'd like to put the next question to you i uh in dvc f focuses on funding bootstrap companies as we've said that are 
that are profitable and getting them profitable or, or to, to some healthier place in an 18th month, 18 month run. And, and this is how you built Chauffeur. What would you say to a company owner, owner that is in that first, that first 18 month runway that they've been given by, a, by an investment fund um, like OATV. What would you say to that founder? Because you did it. You did it right when you bootstrapped. You didn't take any money, and you've now got a successful business. What would you say to those founders that are still in that critical 18-month yeah, so um, stage? I'd like to get some contracts first. So I still haven't taken out any money. Um, when I was interested in taking money was about a year and a half ago, and we were entering our third year of business. And I got in front of uh, a lot of VCs. I, I sat at the tables of Silicon Valley and New York. And there was kind of this common theme that I noticed. Um, I would present our deck to the VCs. And the first thing they would do is they would look at it and they would say, hi, huh, you're profitable. And for me, it was like, well, yeah, I'm profitable. That, <laughs> that's the only way I can live. And that's the only way I know how to grow my company with cash flow, right? So I explained this to them. And they said, well, no, uh, you know, here in Silicon Valley or you know, New York, we don't necessarily care about profitability as long as there's an eventual path to profit. And nowadays there are a lot of companies that are going public without being profitable. Um, you know, I think some companies, um, especially if they're hardware intensive, um, which makes them capital intensive, they do require uh, a lot of funding, and they're not going to be profitable, especially in the beginning. But some other companies, um, companies that are low-tech or more dependent on software, they don't necessarily have to be unprofitable uh, to scale or scale at a, at a fast pace. So that just didn't so sit well with me. I was, um, I was basically thinking, I said, hmm, so I could take out all this money, right? And what you want me to do is you want me to essentially grab market dominance. So the bus industry, the bus industry is about uh, um, $300 billion market across the world, right? So market dominance means that you want me to capture $30 billion of <laughs> this market, right? And I don't know if I can, right? I can't sit here and confidently look you in the eye and tell you that I'm going to take $30 billion of this pie, right? So... I just walked out. I said, you know, I, I don't necessarily have to swing for these fences, right? These fences are, are you know, have very low probability, right? For me, the fences that I want to swing after are, you know, um, I want to grow my company to be um, $500 million company or maybe even a billion dollar company, right? And that, that's totally fine with me, right? Um, you know, last year I pulled out a few million dollars and this year we've had 400% growth since last year. And we did that organically. So um, that's when um, I really connected with uh, NEMA and NDVC. They basically told me, hey, listen, so what we're going to do is we're going to write you a check. We're going to write you a small check, right? And we're also going to help you. If you need help, we're going to help you, right? But we don't necessarily want your chances of success to be very low. More importantly, they didn't want to control my destiny, right? And that's, that's very important to me because... Although I know a lot about the bus industry, um, there's still a lot of things that I'm figuring out. I'm still having growing pains, right, while running a successful company. And that's part of the process. So um, what I would say with companies that, you know, have an 18-month 
month runway is, you know, th- think about it carefully. Um, I think, you know, Nima, uh, sorry, Bryce touched on this. There's this common narrative that uh, VCs are selling that, you know, you have to be the next Google or you have to be the next Facebook, right? But you also have to understand that these companies, um, first of all, it required a, a lot of luck, right? It's not just about doing the right thing um, and, and planning, right? It does require luck. It requires being at the right place at the right time, which is what I consider luck. Um, so I would tell them, you know, th- think carefully. Is this something that you really want to do, right? Do, do you want to do you want to swing for these fences, or would you be okay with having a higher probability of success? And hey. Maybe you could grow a $10 billion or $100 billion company, but it might take you a little longer, or you might be a little more careful um, and have a higher probability of success. So I think that's, that's my answer. And Bryce and Nima, you have certainly overseen many, many companies and talked to many founders like Armir. Uh, who have had varying degrees of success with that. Um, it, it, can it be a little tricky trying to change a founder's mind? Yeah, very. Very. I mean, I think, you know, if, if you haven't seen it the way Amir has, uh, has seen it working and recognized that, you know, there are so many situations where you actually don't have, you know, where, where you've been sold this storyline that, to grow, you have to ra- to grow quickly. You have to raise a bunch of money. There are so many situations where entrepreneurs are recognizing that they don't have to do that. They're seeing the results of that. Um, but until you see those, I mean, you know, they're they're. I often say, you know, sometimes you got to touch the stove, you know, to really learn it. And you know, I think both ways. I think you know, there there's a class of entrepreneurs who, um, like, it's all they've ever known is this really. Um, fluid, liquid, um, dynamic uh, venture market, and they think that's kind of the only way to do it. Um, and so part of our goal from NDVC is to really highlight the stories and showcase the folks who are showing that, you know, you can, oftentimes you can scale these businesses uh, without sacrifice and without having to, you know, make the trade-offs that come with, with raising that kind of capital. Right, and, and compromising who you are. I, I, as I read your blog, Bryce, I often thought, this is like the music business when a band says, well, we're not going to, we're going to just do the same sound that everybody else is doing because we want right. to get a record deal. <laughs> I thought, as, as, I, as I watched all your thought leadership guys, I thought, you know, these guys probably being, being a VC in Silicon Valley is sort of like being a record executive where everybody's, everybody's handing <laughs> well, you their I mean, it, you know? it, it is interesting. Um, I mean, you know, there's a dynamic that goes into fundraising that isn't always exactly genuine and an experience in working with your board where, you know, you really have to kind of sell that, that vision over and over. And as we, you know, have gotten further and further into NDVC, I joke that I've become the startup confessional, right? Like I'm a priest um, because so many founders come and confess their sins of having to, you know, having, sold a story that they didn't necessarily believe in or they even wanted to create. They just knew they had to sell that story in order to get the attention of, of investors to be able to keep going. Right. Well, then that, that makes a lot of sense. It certainly relates to, uh, for, you know, folks like us that are, that are everybody, I think who works on the internet has some version mm-hmm. of that dream of that aspiration. Um, 
so in Atlanta, we're very proud of our tech scene. Um, I, a lot of great companies out of here. I think Nima, if I was listening to your podcast correctly, I think you've got someone in your portfolio yes, that's, yes, yes. that's here we in have, Atlanta. Uh, Maya Vanna, uh, Candice Mitchell, she's the CEO. And, but you know, as you can imagine, there there might be a bit of a, a of an inferiority complex, if you will, in Atlanta about the tech scene. We're certainly no Silicon Valley, but what would you say? What would you say to a a, a tech entrepreneur? who, you know, they've got a software prototype, they've been bootstrapping, um, and they, you know, let's let's just say it's built. Let's say it's been developed either because they're a coder or they had somebody overseas do it or whatever. What do you say to that founder, that one in Atlanta, who just doesn't, they're not connected at all to Silicon Valley, they're, you know, but, but they think they might be at that stage? I mean, I think, you know, we usually just start by asking them what's their hope and aspirations. I mean, honestly, that's how Armir and I became friends. Um, we just talk about goals, what's important to them. Um, if, if, if their goals align with the goals of a fund, you know, at the end of the day, NDVC is still a venture fund. We are held to the same exact standards as everyone else. We just happen to believe that you can build meaningfully large businesses while remaining profitable. Um, but it's really more about where, what the founder wants to do. Um, and, and a big, big part of the thesis that Bryce early on embedded into NDDC is, you know, you should be where your home is. Um, there's, there's nothing that says you have, you, you know, you have to move to uh, the Mission District in San Francisco to be successful, right? There's plenty of fabulously successful businesses built everywhere. Um, so we would just start by really what success and happiness to that founder and, you know, if her goals align with ours, then we might be a fit. And obviously you can be successful out of Salt Lake City. Right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, there's, we learned that today. plenty of massive bootstrap companies coming out of Utah. But look, the reality is the, the most, um, the companies that are having the biggest impact on Salt Lake City right now, whether that's, you know, inside sales or Qualtrics or Pluralsight, most of those companies bootstrapped for the better part of a decade. You know, Pluralsight bootstrapped for eight years. Inside sales, you know, they've, they've raised some money, but it was always, you know, fairly opportunistic. And for years, they couldn't attract capital. And, you know, the reality is, if you're a founder in Atlanta, for you to get the kind of attention that... Um, it's going to require for you to get funding out of Silicon Valley to get those networks plugged into your business. You just have to be so much better. You have to be so much further along. The reality was Qualtrics and, and Pluralsight and these others, they didn't go raise money. People came to them and asked if they could give them money. And really, that's the position we're trying to put entrepreneurs in, the much more leveraged position of not needing to take the money, not having to take the money. I think the mistake the Atlanta entrepreneur ends up doing is they see the playbook that's getting run in Silicon Valley, but they go raise an angel round and they raise, you know, 12 to 18 months worth of cash. And then they set themselves up to have to go raise again, you know, after that's done. And they try to run that same playbook out of Atlanta. And that's just, that's a, that's a fool's game. There, you know, it, it just doesn't work that way. And so, you know, if yep. I'm, if I'm the entrepreneur in Atlanta, or if I'm advising the entrepreneur in Atlanta, I'm saying, you got to be so good they can't ignore you, or you have to be so connected, or you have to have some edge that gets you in front of those Silicon Valley networks 
And if you don't, raise as little, little as possible and get as far as possible with what it is you've raised to really validate this business. And then put yourself in a position where you can be fielding the inbound instead of just, you know, kind of continually living on planes going out there to the Bay Area trying to convince investors, um, you know, to give you money. I mean, Amir, you went through a bit of that, right? I mean, I think you've always flirted a little bit with, do I go raise money? Do I not raise money? Um, and, you know, I'm sure you've experienced the same thing. Yeah, exactly. And it's tempting, right, because of how a lot of VCs are selling it. And, you know, you see the Facebooks and you see the Snapchats, right? And it is tempting. Uh, but at the end of the day, I realized that I was constantly flying to uh, San Francisco, right? And I was on these conference calls every day, and I was trying to build a network that didn't necessarily exist in Atlanta. But while I was doing that, what I wasn't doing is I wasn't growing my business. I was being distracted, right? So at one point, I smartened up and I said, okay, for, forget this. This is not worth it for me. I'm just going to focus on growing my business. And as, as a matter of fact, a lot of VCs started coming to me and they started approaching uh, us because they saw the press and they saw the growth. So I, yeah, I'm on the same page with you there. Armir, did you choose Atlanta uh, for a? Was there a strategic reason behind that? I know that I know that you have at some time you lived in North Carolina and then you you built your business in Atlanta. But you know, I've never actually asked you this. What? Why Atlanta? Yeah, well, you know, for me, um, money is very important, right? But also, my happiness and my well-being is is equally as important, if not more important, right? So I have family in Atlanta, and I have friends in Atlanta. And Atlanta just seemed, um, you know, seemed to be the right place where I would be happy because I, I don't think you can build a successful business without being happy and without feeling fulfilled, right? Um, so I think that, that that's what it was for me. Yeah, it, well, it sounds like you, I, I'm just going to guess that you and Bryce have made similar life decisions. Bryce, I know I know you have kids. You've mentioned in your blog that you have a you have a big family. And so that work-life balance is, uh, that's really key. It's, uh, yeah, you, you definitely make trade-offs, but it's one we, we were excited to make. We tried living in San Francisco for a couple of years, and it, it, uh, it wasn't for us. But I think that's also one of the competitive advantages that folks in Atlanta and, and underserved markets ought to have is that massive chip on your shoulder, right? Like, you don't just want to make it work. You want to make it work in Atlanta now. You know what I mean? We don't just want to, you know, I don't want to make it work. I don't, I don't want to be a good investor for... Salt Lake City, I want to show that you can be, a, you know, every bit as good of an investor, you know, from a place that most people would say you couldn't. And I think that's, that's something that, that most uh, local communities ought to be embracing more of. Right. I have to throw in another music reference. It's like you want to be Rush, who wants to blow up out of Canada, you know, and be nowhere near <laughs> Hollywood, right? <laughs> well, look, I mean, no, Atlanta was a blip on the hip-hop scene. You know, when I was coming up, it was New York and L.A. and a little bit going on in the Bay Area. And now Atlanta's, you know, Atlanta's running hip hop right now. It, it really is. You know, and I think what what's true of hip hop in Atlanta and true of entrepreneurship in any city is you have to just embrace your sound. You have to have your own unique vibe, um, both as a, you know, as an individual artist, but also as a community. And I think that's one thing so many um so many of these startup hubs, these startup communities fail to do is recognize what are their unique strengths, what are their unique characteristics and, and experiences that they can bring to entrepreneurship instead of just trying to replicate what's going on somewhere else. 
Yeah, that makes complete sense, and that is uh, that's certainly encouraging to uh, hear from here in uh, the hub of the southeast. I know that we can go. I know that we can be competitive with San Francisco in terms of traffic. Uh, I think I've driven in both cities, and I know it's. I don't know. I, I, I don't know what's happening to y'all's infrastructure, <laughs> but I hope that. that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, neither do we. Um, the the memes are abounding, though. That's for sure. Um, guys, we're gonna we're gonna bring it in for our landing here, but I, I do want to give everybody here on this panel uh, just one last chance uh, to give a piece of advice uh, to to an entrepreneur. Um, we've got a guy here in the office, and he's he's a young guy, and he's he uh, certainly talented, certainly gifted. He's got some great ideas. What's the first step you take with your great idea? And I'll give it to all three of my guests here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna let the, the out of respect uh, for the eldest to speak first. So. <laughs> <laughs> Who's gonna claim eldest? <laughs> I mean, are we going uh, by age? I'll, 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 just, I'll, just, I'll just get the easy answer out of the way first, which is forget your idea. Your idea is not anything. You got to do it. Put the, put the work in. Start, start grinding now. Start putting it out into the real world, whether that's getting validation through conversations or start building it, start iterating. Your idea is only as good or worthwhile as um, the next. So the, the only difference is made in the folks who choose to pursue those and do something with them um, versus just continue to have them in, in their heads. To, to build on what Bryce just said, uh, El, Elroy Benson, he was a uh, finance professor, he once said, risk means more things can happen than will happen. So if you just decide to sit and try to figure out of all the things that could go wrong, including you know natural disasters and financial downturns, you'll never start a business, right? The best thing to do is just to get going. Um, know that you'll make mistakes, um, but you'll learn. Yeah. Well, um, since I'm the youngest, I think um, <laughs> they took they took my answers. Those are my answers. That's no, fair. no kidding. <laughs> uh, no, uh, you know, for me, uh, I think uh, you know, kind of building on that also is, yeah, go ahead, uh, go ahead, do it. Um, be like Nike and just do it. But um, what's also really important that. is <laughs> what's also really important is that uh, you have to sell it, right? I, I think a lot of people underestimate sales. Um, there's a, a famous uh, person in Silicon Valley who may or may have not started PayPal, but um, he said when he started that um, he thought it was 80% product and 20% sales, and then um, after he saw success, realized that it was 80% sales and 20% product, which I don't know if I fully agree with, but um, yeah, I think uh, you know, sell it, make sure there's a market fit, uh, and certainly do that before you decide to take uh, any money, right? So, so what you're saying is it's 100 percent sales, right? Correct. Yeah, for you, yes. Right. I, I'm, just, I'm starting to understand why you guys get along so well. <laughs> right. Well, Nima, your background was in business development, right? I, I know you've you've written some pieces about that. All I've done is sell. I don't know anything else. Man, man. <laughs> Well, guys, this has been fantastic. As I sit here and, and listen to you three talk, I, I think I, I, I wish uh, 10 years ago when I was starting out in the Internet, I wish I had uh, had a podcast like this. This has been great, great information. Thank you so much for your time. I have, I have something to say, if you don't yeah. mind uh, cutting me in. Uh, Nima and Bryce, if there are 
talented uh, entrepreneurs that have great opportunities in Atlanta or across the world, uh, what is the best way that they can contact you guys? Uh, email, uh, Twitter, um, handwritten notes tied to Pigeon's Life, <laughs> signals, any of the above. Um, both, uh, we're both first name at OATV.com. He's uh, at Bryce on Twitter. I'm Nima3Rod at Twitter. Um, or you can go to our website, NDVC.com, and they can actually apply directly from there. Awesome. All right. The, uh, well, I would love to thank all my guests again, uh, Bryce Roberts and Nima Eliasi-Rod from O'Reilly Alphatech Ventures and Armir Harris, CEO of Chauffeur. Chauffeur is the most trusted bus reservation service in North America. The company currently serves more than 100 cities nationwide and has logged more than 5 million miles with no accidents to help more than 1 million customers get from one point to another faster. Looking for your next transportation need to be fulfilled? Contact us today at 1-800-436-8719. Thanks, everybody. Have a fantastic day. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye now.